Wadada, wadada don don. This is a message from engine room one. Tracks are shifting, a rally done come. Winter are gone, spring has sprung. But that doesn't mean to leave your fear. Drop your guard, forget your gear. There's bears out there. Oh my, oh dear. A war, inflation, rates rising all year. Yield curves flattening, it better not invert, cause another recession would really hurt. Yet the winds are changing, you can feel it in the flow. Risk is back at the party. Say hey, say ho. But let's keep our heads during this transition. We don't want to get faked out of position. Stay smart, stay calm, stay cool, reassess. As the tracks are shifting under the Investopedia Express. Hey now, the U.S. stock market is coming off its best week since November of 2020 as the dip buyers were back, sending the Nasdaq up more than 8%, the S&P 500 up more than 6%, and the Dow Industrials up 5.5%. This even after the Federal Reserve bumped interest rates up a quarter point and flagged at least six more rate hikes through the balance of the year. The Fed would like to see the overnight lending rate at about 2.4% by the end of 2022. It also predicts inflation will cool down by mid-year and fall sharply lower in 2023. A spraying of interest rate hikes will do that to runaway prices. But you know what else brings down high prices? High prices. Consumers pull back when prices stay too high for too long. And we saw signs of that last week when the February retail sales numbers came in lower than expected at just a 0.3% increase from January. And the Fed lowered its forecast for U.S. GDP for the year from 4% to 2.8%. That's a pretty big cut. And the bond market is whistling some warnings. That's a steamer. The yield curve is flattening, which is another way of saying that yields on long-term bonds, which are typically higher than short-term bonds, are falling as investors pile money back into them looking for safety. Yields fall as prices rise. As those yields fall, they are approaching the yield on short-term government bonds, which have been rising as investors sense the near-term economic outlook is not so rosy. A flattening yield curve is one thing. An inverted yield curve, when the yield on long-term bonds fall below those of short-term bonds, is a five-alarm fire. Those usually precede recessions. We're not there yet, but pay attention to the bond market. It really runs things around here. On the topic of recessions, just like bear markets, they are a feature of economic cycles and markets, not a bug. We did have a tiny recession in the second quarter of 2020 after the pandemic set in, but we haven't had a whopper of a recession, which used to be referred to as two consecutive quarters of negative growth, since 2008-2009. Today, we characterize recessions as a steep decline in economic activity spread across the economy, lasting more than a few months, normally visible in real GDP, real income, employment, industrial production, and wholesale retail sales. Since World War II, there have been 13 recessions in the United States. That's one every six years on average. The shortest amount of time between recessions, one year. The longest amount of time between recessions, 11 years. There will be another recession. We just don't know when, and we just don't know why. And the stock market doesn't always suffer during recessions. But if you look at how mutual fund managers are behaving lately, you might think the sky is falling. According to Bank of America's recent fund manager survey, sentiment is bearish, cash levels, economic projections, and profit expectations are also recessionary. But their equity allocations are not. So while they fear the worst, they're not scared enough to capitulate and get out of their stock positions completely. That could keep some support under the market if it tumbles again. We shall see. And investors have been snuggling back up to stocks in a big way last week. At least their favorites, the big ones, the ones they've been going out with for a while. Who doesn't love the Lion King? 
But not all stocks have that love and feeling, especially the moonshots of 2020. Check out some of the washouts from 2020 that are down more than 70% from their all-time highs. Peloton, Zoom Video Communications, Teladoc, GameStock, AMC, which also decided to buy a gold and silver mining company in Nevada last week, Roku, Rivian, DocuSign, Palantir, Moderna, Twilio. There are many, many more on that list. So if you bought them in the run-up and you have not said goodbye, remember the math. A 50% drawdown requires a 100% rally to get back to even. Anything can happen, but the air has rushed out of these stocks. The broader market, on the other hand, is starting to show some momentum. Last week, the S&P 500 gained 6.2% for the best week of the year. Going back to 1980, the best week of the year is up an average of 5.3%. And as our pal Ryan Dietrich points out, for only the fifth time ever, last week the S&P 500 gained at least 1% for four consecutive days. When this has happened in the past, one year later, the S&P 500 has been up more than 20% every single time with an average gain of 28%. And just like that, the S&P 500 is up 2% in March. The good news is March is usually strong, but April is even better. Ryan is back on the Express in just a few minutes with some more tasty market morsels, but don't ignore the market's momentum. It is rumbling. And one more thing, stock buybacks are on the rise, and we usually don't see that when companies are fearful about the future. According to Goldman Sachs, firms in the S&P 500 have outlined buyback plans valued at $238 billion through the first two months of 2020. That, my friends, is a record pace. Let's get set up for the week ahead. It's kind of quiet out there on the corporate news front as we head into the final days of a tumultuous first quarter, but we're going to get an earnings report from Nike. Tune in to what the company is saying about the global supply chain and retail sales in the U.S. and China. Shares of Nike are down 21% year to date. NVIDIA will host its GTC 2022 premiere event this week, and the chip maker is going deep on its accelerated computing, deep learning, data science, and quantum computing future product ambitions. So we'll see if that can put some sugar back into the chip maker as shares are down 10% for the year, but still up over 105% in the past year. We're going to be keeping a very close eye on the U.S. housing market this week as the average 30-year fixed mortgage rate is topping 4.5% for the first time since 2019. Last week, the National Association of Realtors reported existing homes dropped 7.2% last month. We're going to get additional updates on February sales of newly built homes on Wednesday with pending home sales set to follow on Friday. They're expected to fall as well as limited inventory, higher home prices, and those rising mortgage rates make potential buyers think twice. On Friday, the University of Michigan will release the final reading of its Consumer Sentiment Index for March. It's at a 10-year low as U.S. consumers are worrying about inflation, the worsening war in Ukraine, and rising rates. The share of those surveyed who expected their personal finances to worsen in the year ahead was also the greatest since the survey began in the 1940s. And don't cry for me, Argentina. The International Monetary Fund will approve a refinancing of the country's $45 billion in debt after two years of negotiations. If approved, it will be Argentina's 22nd IMF restructuring program following the record 2018 bailout that failed to stabilize the economy. Inflation in that beautiful country is 49%. Pa! Harito! Que boludo! Che! Argentina's stock market, on the other hand, is up 9% this year and up 36% in the past year. Es la verdad. 
Investors are surrounded by walls of worry. We're worried about inflation. We're worried about the war in Ukraine. We're worried about rising interest rates. We're worried about things we don't even know about, but we're worried that we're worried about those things anyway. You know what's a good thing to do when the walls of worry are closing in? Look back at where we've been, how things played out, and look for clues about what that might tell us about the future. Nothing is certain. And as our friend Ryan Dietrich, the chief market strategist at LPL Financial, likes to say, with a nod to Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Ryan is back on the Express with us this week with a little dose of perspective. Thanks for joining us in the middle of March Madness, Ryan. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for being flexible with me on when we could get this done. And I'm not even sure if Mark Twain really said that. It's like, you know, he gets all the cool quotes, you know, him and Patton and those guys. But I, I love that quote. I love looking at history and it'll be fun uh, getting to talk to you today on the on the podcast. Can't wait. Good to have you here, Ryan. The stock market feels pretty irrational lately. It feels like it's trading off of headlines. Sentiment is sour. Fund managers are holding more and more cash. Is that right? Or is this a pattern we've seen before during other periods of uncertainty? Am I making this up? Well, it does feel a little different this time. Didn't they say the four most dangerous words? It is different this time, right? Sir John Templeton. But let's, I think we, there's a lot of ways we can go with the, to answer this question, to be honest. But let's go with this. We knew coming into this year, Caleb, that it was a midterm year. Historically, midterm years see a 17% peak to trough correction, the most volatile out of the four-year cycle. If you're willing to hold those lows, and I'll admit no one knows what the lows are, a year later, you're up over 30%. We also knew the economic cycle was aging. We knew the Fed was going to start hiking interest rates. Remember back in 2015, early 2016, when they started hiking rates, that wasn't the best time for the market until it found its footing. So we knew some of these things. And oh, by the way, last year only had a 5.2% peak to trough correction on the S&P, as most people remember. You look in history, you usually have a rockier year the next year. So we knew all those things coming in. The LPL research, you know, we've got a 5,000 target, fair value target on the S&P. Still, that can happen. Feels kind of like a long way away, but the bounce this week makes it a little bit easier. But still, we would have said, hey, the chance of a 10 to 15% correction this year in 2022 was really strong. I mean, we expected to see that. Did we think it happened the first month of the year or second month of the year? Well, maybe not. But again, we knew all that coming in, and now here we are. And again, what do they also say, right? Stock market's the only place things go on sale. Everyone runs out of the store screaming. Headlines have been super scary. Bad, bad stuff's happening. Yes. But it sure felt like things are on sale and people are pretty scared. Maybe once again, history will repeat itself and I get to come on with you another, you know, another six, nine months from now or so. And I think we'll be a good deal higher. Yeah. Well, you did talk about a potential correction earlier in the year. I think at the end of 2021, your notes were all over that. But you've been writing about these big one day gains we've seen really in the past week or two here. These big bounces that we're seeing, even though they fade a little bit, these are the kinds of strong bounces, Ryan, that are prevalent kind of at market bottoms. Take us inside history on this one. How how common is it for us to see these big one, two, three percent swings in a day to the upside after a long period of just downdrafts? You know, the way we see it, Caleb, is this. When you, ha- you can have a one-day bounce of one, two, three percent or so, that's normal. And I mean, even like in 2008, right, we saw like more three, four percent gains that year than like any year other than the Great Depression. It's you know, I've had some really bad days among, amongst that, too. It's when you get some follow through, when you get continued strength. So what as we're recording this, right, we had three straight one percent gains on the S&P 500. I said it would have been on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. That's pretty rare to see three consecutive gains of at least one percent, actually up almost six percent all those three days total. But when I went back 20 years, I found there were only 10 other times when the S&P gained 1%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 
three consecutive days. One year later, S&P was higher every single time, 10 for 10, with a 25% average. I mean, so my take is this, this blast of strength that we've just seen this year is not um, the hallmark of the end of a bullish move or kind of the middle of a bullish move. I know it sounds crazy. It's almost a hallmark to a start of a new bullish move. The last two times we saw it, the election in 2020 and March in 2020, two pretty good times to uh, look to uh, buy the scare and buy the fear, and which eventually obviously resolved higher. And you know, we'll see where this one goes, but this blast of strength is usually a sign of you probably want to be long, I guess is the best way to put it for the next six to 12 months. Trend watchers, market technicians, you're both of those things. They call these periods of consolidation, periods of foundation forming, right? We're, la- we're laying the foundation for potentially higher gains. At the same time, we know what's coming our way, right? The Fed has pretty much mapped out the next six interest rate hikes for the rest of the year. They want to see the Fed funds rate back up to 2.4%, where it was pre-pandemic. That's obviously thrown the big chill over the stock market, particularly tech stocks. But rate hikes are not necessarily the kryptonite that everyone thinks they are, are they, Ryan? No, they're not. And again, it's like most of us or a lot of people doing this for the last 10 years or so, they haven't really seen too many cycles of rate hikes, right? The way we look at the LPL research is this. When the Fed starts hiking, you're probably more mid-cycle, meaning there's probably more years left of an economic gain or a stock market gain. I know that sounds kind of weird, but when you break it down, it actually it's actually the way it is. We looked at the last seven times the Fed did the first hike in a new cycle. One year later, S&P was higher six of those times, right? I mean, with some pretty solid gains. We also saw when you had to do that first hike, Caleb, the stock market doesn't peak for almost three and a half years later on average. Believe me, there's lots of other stuff swirling out there. I get it. But to just to blindly say, oh, my God, the Fed is hiking rates. Let's go sell everything and buy gold and hide under the bed. That's not kind of how this works. And again, it's uh, there's some reasons they're hiking, right? The economy is finally standing on two feet. We've got 40-year inflation. They need to hike to try to combat some of these things. So you could say, is this time different? I get that all the time. This time's different because we've got a lot of inflation. So, yeah, it is. We haven't had – we've never seen a Fed hiking rates with the yield curve this flat, right? I mean, it's like never happened before. So there are some some things in there, but at the same time, to blindly say the Fed hiking is bad, it's not true, right? And again, maybe it means there's still more time to go and we can talk about the economy and stuff. I'll just leave it at this. Earnings expectations this year are actually up 3%. S&P 500 earnings expectations for 2022 are up 3%. Might not sound like a lot, but when you see all the stuff that's happened this year, that's pretty impressive. So earnings continue to drive long-term stock gains and corporate America is still pretty optimistic about the future. And I know what the uh, consumer confidence numbers always say, but what are the consumers doing, right? They're saying one thing, but they're doing another. And the economy still looks pretty healthy to us. And that means we probably don't see a recession for a couple more years, at least. Yeah, retail sales slid off a little bit in the past month. Prices were high. We're also coming out of the holidays, so people are regrouping. But you're right. We keep spending our way through whatever comes our way. That's what U.S. consumers do. It's our favorite sport. We do see a little bit of a dent into credit. You see a little bit of a dent into household savings. We're not where we were last year, but... The personal savings rate was through the roof because of those government distributions out to folks. So consumers seem to be hanging in there. But I guess the worry, and I guess you hear it all the time from your advisors and the people you talk to, is that, hey, they're going to hike too fast. They're going to 
cool down borrowing costs so much. No one's going to want to buy a car, put a mortgage down, put a mortgage payment down. Businesses aren't going to want to spend on CapEx. How serious do you think that those concerns are? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very real concerns. I mean, you know, there's no doubt about it. At the same time, I say like this, we're a little skeptical. We're going to see like six or seven hikes this year. We're more in the four or five camp. Nonetheless, that's a good amount of hikes. Just remember this, though. If you look back in history in 2004, five and six, right? Those three years. The Fed hiked 17 total times. The S&P was higher every single year, all three of those years. Not like massively higher, but was still higher, right? I mean, still some solid gains. So again, we've got the same concerns as everybody else. Is the Fed behind the eight ball? Are they going to hike too far, too fast? You know, the geopolitical concerns, what's going to happen with China and Taiwan? I mean, we, you know, we get paid to worry to stewards of assets. And those are clearly some of the, some of the very valid, valid concerns. But, you know, you think about this year, right? I mean, we just had the 50th trading day of the year earlier this week. Week, maybe Monday or Tuesday, I'm not 100% sure, but 50th trading day of the year. This is the sixth worst start to a year ever for the S&P 500. Someone might hear that and say, oh my God, that's, that doesn't sound good. And it, it doesn't sound good. But then you look at the other five worst times, the rest of the year was higher 35% on average, only once was the rest of the year down. It was like barely down. It was like in 2001 in a recession year. So we've had some massive bounces back, 2009, 2020, or some of the recent ones, 82s in there. Terrible starts to a year, and it can snap back, you know. So I know all this bad stuff's out there, but I always like to say the market is a forward-looking mechanism that's pricing bad stuff in, or good stuff in for that matter. And there's been a lot of bad stuff that's priced in. And any good news at all, look at the bounce we've seen this week. Oh my God, did we really even have that great of news this week? You know, headlines overseas are still pretty terrible if you ask me. The Fed's hiking. I don't know. The Fed sounded pretty hawkish on Wednesday. But it wasn't the end of the world. And the market had this rip-roaring best week it's had all year. So there's probably a little more fuel in the tank when you look at that global fund survey that uh, Bank of America does. Almost 6% cash what in the world does that mean? Well, that's like the highest since the pandemic, right? There really is a cliche to say money on the sidelines. There really is some money on the sidelines with the rough start to the year we've seen, but previous rough starts to a year, they, they, they've seen some pretty good sized bounces. We wouldn't want to bet against that this time. That's, folks, why we stay invested, and that's why we talk to Ryan Dietrich. We need that perspective. Otherwise, it's really easy to lose your head in a market like this. Ryan, energy and financials have been really the market leaders all year, really energy for obvious reasons, right? Rising commodity prices and higher interest rates on the way. Is there any reason to think that dynamic will change throughout the rest of the year? You know, I mean, we've liked cyclical value for a while. So we've, we've been okay with energy and financials leading. We still like that group. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, some of the moves we've seen in commodities, commodities specifically in energy, it is extreme. So that rubber band is stretched far. So maybe there can be some consolidation or a little pullback. But I'll tell you, if there's a pullback, we think energy is a group someone should strongly consider. I believe as of recently, energy makes up about 3% of the S&P 500. So not much. You know, financials are a bigger chunk of, but if you don't have exposure to those two and you're just sitting in the tech names or the fang names that did so well for so long, obviously you're you're looking at the world a lot differently than someone who has a diversified portfolio sticking with cyclical value. So we'd say stick with who brought you to the party. We're still a little bit overweight cyclical value in the models that we run for our nearly 20,000 LPL advisors. And we think it makes sense. I mean, yields are going higher. I know the yield curve's flattening, but you know, still there are some positive things taking place with the consumer. So banks still do pretty well in regional banks, insurance, 
some of these groups have been really broker dealers have been really strong. It's the big money managers, you know, the big names you've heard know and love, or maybe don't love in some cases that have struggled. But financials, there really are some some strong names there, and we think that very well could continue. So we we stick with those areas. Now, tech. The big question I get is, what do you think about tech? Right? I mean, we're more neutral tech. There's 11 S and P 500 sectors. We'd rank tech about six. So we don't hate it. We don't love it. Now, let's be honest. After the pullback we've seen, Nasdaq was in a bear market for like a minute earlier this week until the rip roaring rally. You know, there's probably some solid opportunities in some particular companies, but we're more neutral on tech because we think you know rates probably trickle a little bit higher still, and that that could impact uh, technology in general. So we still like value a little bit over growth, leaning towards cyclical value. Now, you anticipated my question because a lot of investors, including our readers, they didn't rotate out of growth necessarily at the end of 2021. They just kept feeding their retirement or brokerage accounts, or maybe they just held back because they were worried. But keeping that money pouring into index funds, into the big ETFs that are all tilted towards growth because that's where they're all tilted, right? Do you advise they rotate now or wait for the cycle to tilt back from value to growth? Or are we in this low kind of grinding gear for a while? Maybe second, third gear. We're going to produce some gains, but we know rates are rising and it's just going to be a slow grind higher. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's the ultimate question, right? If you miss a move, do you do it now? Do you wait? I mean, I, I like the idea of dollar cost averaging. It's not quite what we're talking about here, but maybe move a little bit to the value now, and then there might be a bounce. Honestly, you look at like value growth right now. I mean, value is really big growth, so maybe it's time for growth to have a little bit of a pop. I guess my take it might be more like a bear market type of a, a pop here. But I think at the end of the day, the models we run, we're like maybe fifty three percent value, forty seven percent growth. We're not saying make a big swing uh, almost either way, although we would tilt toward the value side, like I just talked about. But I think, you know, having a more balanced portfolio right here and now, this point of the cycle does make a good deal of sense. And then, you know, the whole the whole idea about bonds, and we can get into that. I mean, you know, it's not, well, this has been a rough year for stocks. It's been a really, really rough year for fixed income and bonds on the heels of another rough, rough one for bonds. So, you know, someone who has a diversified portfolio, you're not getting that safety net, or at least the gains that you usually saw in fixed income. Uh, that you tend to see when a stock market sells off. But we, we'd still stick with you know, owning a little bit of bonds. We're overweight stocks relative to the bonds. Again, overweight a tad on the value side. But um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting year when you look around and it's like, if you didn't have commodities, you're probably not feeling pretty good. And I don't know. That's, that's, that's just the way it is this year. Right. Now, and the 60-40 portfolio, which was really tried and true for so many years, has not performed the last couple of years because bond investors have really not had a good time throughout these cycles. Is there any reason that should change? Are we just facing a new dynamic where you got to pick your sector? And if you're looking for safety, if you're looking for a more conservative trade, it's not necessarily going to be in bonds. It might be in a different part of the stock market, which traditionally you don't pay attention to. Yeah, well, think about, you know, a great question there. I mean, you think about bonds. I mean, most people might just think uh, treasuries or Barclays Ag. I mean, there's there's different parts to the bond market, just like there are different parts of the stock market. You know, we've really liked bank loans. We think potentially junk high yield right now for the the beat up that they've had, there's some there's some potential good values there. The truth is this, right? Stocks are, are pricey. Coming into this year, you know, I should have mentioned that. Coming into this year, we knew stocks were pricey. I mean, we knew that, right? It doesn't mean it couldn't keep going up, but I mean, stocks are pricey. Bonds are really, really pricey historically. And you see the 10-year yield. I'm not exactly sure where we are in the US. We'll just say 220. I think it's pretty close right now. Then you got Germany, you know, less than half a, half a percent and Japan down around that area. Even though our yields feel low to us, that's a lot to the rest of the world that has even lower yields. So there's still, I think, a lot of demand for our fixed income and, and our, our juicy 2.2% yield with our 10 years. I totally get that. What's the greatest risk out there for individual investors, Ryan, that no one's really talking about? 
I know the way I answer this at the start of the year, and I still think it's true. I think U.S.-China relations, I know, you know, we've got some other geopolitical concerns that have popped up. But, you know, the truth is, when President Biden won, most people thought U.S. and China relations would become better, right? Maybe some of those tariffs would come off and that hasn't happened at all, right? And now everything that's going on in Ukraine, you know, is China going to help Russia and whose team are they on and what's going to happen here? I'm not saying I'm staying up at night thinking about it, but I think that's one thing investors need to be aware of. And then you see the whole, we're going to delist Chinese names and Chinese stock market was killed. And then we had the enormous rally in, in China a couple of days ago. But that's the one that gets me because we all remember in 2018 when the tariffs, uh, back, what, I guess February of 2018, when we slapped on the tariffs on washing machines, that was a major, major structure peak for stocks for a long time. I'm not saying other trade wars coming. I'm just saying when the U.S. and China don't get along like they did in 2018, that wasn't always a good thing for investors. On the other side, Brian, what's the greatest opportunity for individual investors that no one's really talking about right now? I still think financials. I look at a lot of financial stocks, okay? And they've had a run. They're like where they were in 2008, right? We all know technologies had this great run. Communications had this great run. Those are stretched. And then you look at these bigger picture charts and things like financials. I just got energy. I know energy's had this huge run, but on a relative basis, energy stocks relative to tech stocks or some other parts of the market, it's just this little blip of outperformance. So there really could, in our opinion, there could be a lot more outperformance. I'm not talking this for a year or two. I'm talking these major cycles that we tend to see for five or 10 years where finally, believe me, I know it's been rough, where finally, you know, some of these value names can start to do well. And don't forget, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, three-year bear market. Well, that's not our call. But, you know, the threat, three-year bear market, financials and value did pretty well. So when the tech comes down and the growth comes back, money's going to go somewhere. So I think the opportunity to, to realize that the, the cycles can last a while, that's really important. And I think uh, that's a place people can do well for hopefully you know, several, several more years. Yeah, to your point, there's a bear market happening somewhere all the time. Usually there's a bull market happening somewhere all the time. you got to know where these things are happening. Or you could just spread the risk out a little bit, dollar cost average, as you mentioned, and protect yourself no matter what happens, because a lot of us can't follow it as closely as you can. Ryan, you're such an astute observer of the market, such a great market historian, a technician, and so good at explaining it. You know our site is built on investing terms. What's your favorite investing term, Ryan, and why? You kind of just said it. I was thinking that. Dollar cost averaging. I mean, who really did well the last couple of years when it came to investing? It was the person who was just putting money in their 401k every two weeks and didn't, you know, they might've been scared. I mean, there's a lot of scary stuff, but the ones that didn't panic, they kind of used the opportunity when things came down and they made, they made good investment decisions by continuing to invest every couple of weeks. I mean, the dollar cost average is such a powerful thing because he just talked about, he asked me, you know, I don't know, three, four questions ago, what should you do right now? It's so hard when the market pulls back a bunch because the way our brains are wired is go all in. I could have told you there'd been a 15% correction this year. We thought there probably would be. And then, you know, boom, here it is. And everyone's kind of scared to death. But just be aware, you can put a little in, a little in, a little in. You don't have to always making all in and all out types of trades, right? It's the old swing for sing- singles and doubles. It sounds cliche, but again, it just kind of helps long-term investors reach their goals. Singles and doubles, you rack up enough of those, you wind up in the Hall of Fame like so many good players have done over the years. You swing for the fences, you're going to get a lot of strikeouts. Ryan Dietrich, so good to have you back on the show. So appreciate your perspective. I follow your stuff all the time. Folks, follow Ryan Dietrich and the LPL Financial crew on LPL Financial, but also Ryan on uh, Twitter. Such a good follow, and I love your newsletter. Makes so much sense to me every day. Makes me feel better. Thanks for coming back on The Express, my friend. 
Now, anytime, lplresearch.com is our blog. I have a podcast, LPL Market Signals, and just at Ryan Dietrich. Those are three ways to follow along the crazy, crazy world that we have. But, Caleb, thank you for having me. Big fan of everything you do and all the, all the way you've helped so many investors and people over, I don't know, I don't make it sound old, but over the course of a long time. I know you. <laughs> we've known each other for a while. So thanks a lot for having me on. And maybe let's go watch some basketball. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Hazel in Southampton, New Jersey, in lovely Burlington County. Hazel suggests moral hazard this week, and we like that term because it has a lot of different applications. According to my favorite website, moral hazard is defined as the risk that a party has not entered into a contract in good faith or has provided misleading information about its assets, its liabilities, or its credit capacity. In addition, moral hazard may also mean that a party has an incentive to take unusual risks in a desperate attempt to earn a profit before the contract settles. Moral hazards can happen any time two parties enter into an agreement. Each party in a contract may have the opportunity to gain from acting contrary to the principles laid out by the agreement, which is the moral hazard. But moral hazard can also be applied to the extraordinary monetary policy measures, if you can call them that, that the Federal Reserve used in the great financial crisis when it bailed out Wall Street banks. It loaned tens of billions of dollars to many of those banks that had overgorged themselves on subprime loans and credit default swaps. When the bottom dropped out, their balance sheets caved like an avalanche, threatening to bury them in debt. By bailing them out, many accused the Fed of removing the moral hazard from those banks, the theory being that the banks would behave badly again knowing that the Fed wouldn't let them collapse. Good suggestion, Hazel in Southampton, New Jersey. We're sending you a pair of Investopedia's favorite socks for your next stroll in the neighborhood. We're going to let Muriel Mickey Sieber take us out this week for Women's History Month. Mickey was the first woman to obtain a seat on the New York Stock Exchange, which she did back in 1967. Mickey was a no-nonsense research analyst who became an institutional broker and founder of her own firm, which is still going strong today. She paved the way for so many more women on Wall Street and in financial services, although she would rarely take credit for it. Here's Mickey being interviewed by the Associated Press in 1968 after she obtained her seat on the exchange. Ms. Sieber, do you feel a little lonely being the only distaff member of a basically male financial community? No, I, I, I used to feel a little lonely and I used to feel quite outnumbered, but in recent years there are more and more women who are gaining a pretty good stature down on Wall Street. There are a couple of hundred girls that are members of the New York Society of Security Analysts, and I believe there are now about 55 women partners of Wall Street firms. Oh, you're the first one to reach the floor, as it were. I'm the first woman to own a seat, yes. What has been the reaction among the other male members of the uh, stock exchange? What reaction have they had to a woman coming aboard? Well, I would say on balance, most of the men have been for it. As long as uh, a woman is qualified, and I can prove my qualifications based on my production, I had uh, very little opposition. I had the great pleasure of meeting Mickey Siebert before she passed away in 2013. And what a great woman and a one of a kind. And you are also one of a kind. And I appreciate you joining us on The Express this week and every week. And special thanks to our pal Ryan Dietrich for climbing back aboard. Pay attention to those tracks this week because they are shifting under these rails. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.